Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. So a lot's been happening in the last few weeks and not least of all is I'm very proud to say that my dear friend Emma Shortis has made Andrew Bolt's, Bolt's hit list. I have, yes. I, I received a message today asking me if I was okay and I was like, what? Yeah, I'm fine. Why? And then got a link to a, a quite a lengthy hit piece that Bolt had written uh, on me because I wrote an article about Brexit and white supremacy. So I feel like I've kind of... I don't know, I've like made it in well, Australian I, media landscape. I think you've definitely made it because there was there was a period today where your face or your your this article about you was sandwiched between two articles about Greta Thunberg. So you're keeping good company. Yeah, I, I felt quite proud of that, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about Greta Thunberg. We're going to be talking about climate change and what the options are for people who are serious about climate change and who are committed to keeping global temperature rises under two degrees Celsius by the end of the by the end of the century. That's what we're looking for, right, Emma? Yeah, I think that at an absolute minimum. I think originally we were talking about one point five, but that's becoming, I think, increasingly unattainable. So so the talk is now two degrees. But I, I think you're right, there's there's been quite a shift even just in the last couple of weeks around this debate and this conversation. You know, we we ended our our last episode on US politics in Australia talking about how Morrison and Trump weren't going to the UN Global Climate Summit and they weren't acknowledging the climate strike. And since then we've had, I think at last count, it was something like 7 million people around the world going on climate strike in the in the two weeks since. So we've had, I think, a, a kind of generational shift in that in that language in Australia, the Australian government essentially kind of embarrassing itself on the world stage, Morrison embarrassing himself on the world stage by lying to the UN and, and being called out for it. So I think, yeah, we're seeing a, a rising tide of anger that's that's pretty exciting to watch. Yes, but at the same time, we're also seeing that that is, we have that two, you know, that two degree target and we also have a shortening time frame to get things done. So really, I think that I don't think it's unreasonable to say that 2020 is the year when we need to see decisive global action on climate change. So first thing I'm going to do today is actually go back in time. Um, Emma, Emma's research for her PhD was actually about a more optimistic moment in climate politics. She researched the movement to save Antarctica from, from mining in the 1970s and 1980s. So I wanted to go back to that and ask her a few questions around that, and particularly around Bob Hawke's role. So Bob Hawke, the beloved Australian Prime Minister who, who died a few months ago. Um, we also want to talk about what changed between the 90s when we did see real action on both the uh, on both environmental protections and against climate change to now where our generation you know people like me and Emma in our early 30s are generally quite disillusioned but we're also seeing this great upsurge of both hope and anger from a younger generation so let's go back to i think the late 70s the early 80s em can you set the scene for me what was happening in Antarctica and why were people concerned? So in the sort of 70s and 80s, in the aftermath of the oil crisis, so in the, in the early 1970s, basically because of all kinds of geopolitical tension, we have an oil crisis where in the United States in particular, people are lining up for gas, they're running out of petrol, that kind of thing. And it really, it really shakes the United States in particular, but the Western world more broadly. And so countries like the US, um, the UK and their allies 
kind of go looking for sources of oil outside of the Middle East. The Middle East is seen as quite volatile. And so for energy security reasons, the US, for example, starts looking north to Alaska and and drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And they also start looking south to Antarctica. Okay. Because at at the time, I guess there's this idea of Antarctica being a kind of treasure island of resources. All right, go on. It it sort of goes back to a a, a theory that, to be honest, I don't really understand because I'm a historian, not a geographer. But basically, the idea is that because Antarctica was part of Gondwana land, which is made up of Australia, South Africa and South America, the likelihood is that it has the same kind of resources. So oil, coal, and also precious metals, diamonds, gold, that kind of thing. So the idea is there's this kind of treasure trove of resources just waiting to be exploited. Okay, but no one really knows. No, nobody really knows for sure. This is kind of speculation. So what happens is the countries who govern Antarctica, the US, Australia, France, a bunch of others, decide, okay, there's this interest developing. We need to negotiate an agreement that's going to regulate activity, mining activity in Antarctica. Okay, but not stop it. No, not stop it. And and I think, you know, most of these diplomats are doing that in good faith. They're going in with the idea of saying, okay, this is going to happen, so we've got to do the best we can to protect the fragile Antarctic envir- environment. Okay. It sounds like quite a fatalistic Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. so. And I think it probably also obscures the commercial interest that was there. You know, it, it was hidden, but I think it was there. Oil companies are, are kind of perpetually interested in opening up okay. new frontiers. So when people say the commercial interest wasn't there, which a few scholars would say, I, I would disagree with that. So anyway, so these these countries, diplomats, go ahead and start negotiating this agreement that's going to regulate mining activity in Antarctica. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of environmentalists already working in this space because they're working around things like whaling and the protection of ocean ecosystems from fishing. So they're involved in this diplomatic space and they get wind of this other agreement that's being talked about when okay. it comes to mining. The agreement to regulate mining in, the, in Antarctica. Exactly. And they're kind of horrified that, that this is also happening at the same time. So they immediately start a campaign against this agreement, um, hoping to ban mining in Antarctica completely. Okay. And these activists are based in mostly in the US, but also in Australia and New Zealand, countries that I think have a kind of affinity to Antarctica. And they work really hard lobbying diplomats. They go to the UN to try and draw attention to this. And they, they get some traction, you know, they get some attention with very limited resources. And, you know, at, the, at this time, there's probably like five, between five and 10 central people working on this campaign. So it's pretty small, but they're working pretty hard. Okay. So how did Bob Hawke get wind of this? So Hawkey comes in a little bit later. You know, he liked to claim credit for the whole thing, but he probably didn't come in until much later. So in the late 1980s, after about six years of negotiation, which Australia is taking part in, the parties to the Antarctic Treaty adopt the Convention on the Regulation of Antarctic Mineral Resource Activities, which is like a suitably diplomatic name for for an agreement. Um Jacques Cousteau, who I get to, famously said once, it doesn't sound well. Um, <laughs> How does that translate in the French? Uh, that's that's a question I am not willing to answer. Okay. <laughs> so, my French isn't that good. So, so anyway, 1988, they've negotiated this agreement. Everybody signs it. Despite the efforts of these environmentalists, this, this agreement is signed. There seems to be consensus, right? All of a sudden, it explodes because people realise that actually an agreement has been signed that's going to allow mining in Antarctica. 
And okay. of the reason it explodes is because these environmentalists have already been doing all this work on the ground, raising awareness, talking to, um, you know, policymakers, public servants in Australia and elsewhere. So that's when it comes to the attention of Hawkey or the political attention of Hawkey. You know, he may have known about it before this, but but all of a sudden he kind of gets this agreement that comes to Cabinet to be ratified and, and he and his advisers kind of go, oh, maybe this isn't such a good idea, right? And that and that's partly because the Hawke government already has a pretty strong environmental record when it comes to things we would have heard, we heard about when Hawke died recently. So the Franklin River, uh, Kakadu, that kind of thing, protecting Australia's, Australia's kind of fragile or an important environment. So the argument kind of goes, well, if we're protecting our own environments, why aren't we protecting Antarctica as well, which Australia has a huge stake in? So Hawke kind of turns around and goes, yeah, no, nah, we're not going to sign this. That sounds very Bob Hawke. Yeah, I think there was probably there – he says there was swearing involved, which I think is pretty believable. Yeah, that would also be very Bob Hawke. <laughs> yes. And and speaking of, of course, there's also an ongoing disagreement about who decided this first Hawke or Keating. That sounds very Paul Keating. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty on brand. Um, but anyway, so Australia – turns around and says, we're not going to ratify this agreement, which is actually a pretty big deal because we've had six years of really intense negotiations of really complicated issues around sovereignty, around legal liability, all kinds of kind of like fairly boring diplomatic speak, but it has pretty significant consequences. So it's just been a really difficult process. And all of a sudden, Australia just turns around and goes, nah, we're out, which means the agreement collapses because this system works on consensus. At the same time, in... France, Jacques Cousteau, who is, I guess you'd call him the kind of French David Attenborough. He's Bill Murray played the in the Wes Anderson film. Yeah, that's the okay, one. Okay, so that's so, where this is ringing bells for me. That's right. So, so Bill Murray famously kind of uh, channeled Jacques Cousteau in The Life Aquatic. That's which it. is the yeah, film you're yeah. thinking of. So he's he's the kind of skinny French guy with the big nose and the and the rolled up red beanie. I know him. Yeah. 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 So as I said, sort of the French David Attenborough, you know, David Attenborough with a better accent and, you know, a few sex scandals. I I don't know. I'd I'd argue that he has a better accent than David Attenborough. (laughs) Okay. I have to show you some more Cousteau YouTube clips. Okay. We'll put them in the show notes. (laughs) Um, So what's happened at the same time is these very savvy Greenpeace activists have recruited Cousteau to the Antarctic cause. Cousteau would never admit to this. He hated Greenpeace. He would he would never say he's worked with them. But basically they recruited him, convinced him to work on the campaign because he's kind of looking for a legacy issue. Um, he's he's pretty old by this stage. Um, he's had a bit of you know, bit of controversy surrounding him. So he's, he's looking for something and he's been to Antarctica before. So he starts a petition in France and it gets like, he's, this guy is so famous, he gets like a million signatures in a week. And this is pre-social media. Like these are people actually yeah. writing with pens. And... So the French government is forced to pay attention, essentially. And because of Cousteau and this campaign, the French government at the same time as Hawke turn around and go, yeah, we're not going to sign it either. Okay. So at this point, we've got Australia and France both against the agreement. What do they do next? So Hawke goes to France. They're all chummy. They start an alliance and start an international campaign to convince the other governments to the, that are party to the Antarctic Treaty to negotiate a new agreement that's actually going to ban mining. 
So Hawke goes to the UK to meet with Conservative PM Margaret Thatcher. She's apparently very polite, but basically tells him where to go. She's not interested. He goes to the US to talk to George Bush, gets a pretty similar response. But luckily for him, Cousteau also goes to the US and does this kind of lobbying tour that gets heaps of attention. He makes a documentary that's shown on primetime TV, has millions of people watching it. And so pretty soon afterwards, the Bush administration goes, yeah, all right, we'll negotiate this agreement. Okay, so what happens next? Do they do they renegotiate? What was the, what was the outcome here? So really, they really quickly renegotiate, or they negotiate a new agreement that bans mining in Antarctica for at least fifty years, and comprehensively protects the entire environment of Antarctica. Okay, so that sounds pretty extraordinary to me that we've gone from protections, but you know the regulation of mining, so making mining okay in Antarctica under certain conditions yep. to an absolute ban. Yeah, exactly. It's complete, complete flip. Like it's almost unheard of in environmental negotiations for this to happen. Under three years, we have an, the opposite outcome. And I think it's really particularly significant because this agreement is preemptive rather than reactive. You know, usually what we do when it comes to international environmental action is react to some bad stuff we've already done. So so the probably the more famous international environmental agreement is the one that's trying to deal with the ozone hole the Montreal Protocol in 1987. But that, again, is reacting to some bad stuff we've done and trying to fix it. Whereas this one is saying, actually, no, some places we are not going to touch, right? And it doesn't matter that commercial interests are damaged. It doesn't matter that it's politically difficult. Actually, some places have more meaning than that to humankind. And that's, I think, why particularly the environmental campaign was so effective. I guess, yeah, that was that was my next question. So obviously, I mean, Bob Hawke is, was always very keen to talk up his role in getting this agreement together and a lot of people have been talking about that since his death and how instrumental he was. Do you agree with that or were there other forces and factors involved? Look, I, I think Hawke was really important. Cousteau was really important, bringing the weight of his celebrity. So, you know, these kind of individuals played important roles, but I actually think it's more the kind of weight of this popular movement that captured the imagination of people across the world. You know, millions of people in France and the United States, you know, and in the 80s, like none of them are going to Antarctica. Like they don't have a personal connection with this environment. It's more a sense of, I I guess, kind of global responsibility and, and a willingness to rethink the kind of relationship that we have with the global environment. So it's this really, I think, important moment in the history of global environmentalism. So thinking again on what people were saying about Bob Hawke and his role in saving Antarctica after he died, what really struck me was that people were kind of celebrating this as a moment when politicians and the state were really effective in combating environmental issues. And obviously that's something that needs to be contrasted with the present situation we have where we have a federal government that is not taking action, effective action on climate change. I guess what really... one of the things that really struck me about that is that I feel we've had this a big loss of faith between, you know, the late 80s and early 90s when Bob Hawke was so active in working to protect the environment and today. I can't imagine myself trusting a federal politician to take genuine action on climate change, in all honesty. Why do you th- – how have we got to this point? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I would I, – I share that 
um, you know, opinion that we can't trust the federal government. And I think that's, again, in stark contrast to, to the time that we've just been talking about when when Hawkey in particular is kind of framing these environmental issues as about being about the future, being about the next generation. You know, Cousteau even takes children to Antarctica to, to highlight how important this is for future generations. And I think, you know, this is happening in the 80s when, when we're kids, right? So this hope is kind of invested in us, but but I feel like we've kind of lost hope because of what's happened since. Is that is that how you would say it? I mean, I guess, yeah, thinking about it, I mean, if we think about this in terms of, you know, formative political moments, I'd say for me, maybe the Iraq war protests. That was the point at which, you know, I was remembering back to, I think it was 2003, I was turning 16 and I left school. It was probably the most rebellious thing I ever did as a student. I was not a cool kid. You um, wagged school. I... Well, no, I didn't wag school. I got permission. <laughs> of course you did. Um, but I walked out of school to join the Iraq protests, the Iraq war protests, and I remember this crushing feeling of absolute disillusionment when that came to nothing. You know, tens of millions of people marching around the globe and it did nothing to prevent that war. So I guess, yeah, I mean, if I think about it, that was really an event that shaped my own cynicism about what people can do to affect, the, to, to influence the state. Yeah, same. I mean, it was it was devastating, that sense of betrayal. And then I, I think for me as well, I would go back to to 2007 and, and Kevin Rudd and the, the the moment of hope that that offered, particularly our generation, I think, that had grown up in the, in the shadow of Howard and Iraq and that betrayal and then having this moment of hope that, that things might change and then Rudd's utter failure when it came to climate change especially. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I was I was kind of enraged about this again this week because Kevin Rudd tweeted out the um, you know Greta's amazing speech at the UN and and tweeted the the speech that he had given at the UN where he called climate change the greatest moral challenge of our of our lifetime and and like I'm not particularly interested I think in in relitigating the debate about the carbon tax and whose fault it was that that fell down because that is a debate that nobody's ever going to kind of resolve satisfactorily. But it really it frustrated me because Kevin Rudd kind of set himself up as this climate change crusader who was kind of stymied by, I guess, vested interests. And that while that is true, I think he also failed miserably because when it became clear to him that he, you know, he wasn't going to be able to get the legislation through to create a price on carbon, he just gave up. Like he just chucked it away and gave up. And to me, that is a real failure. And for him to try and kind of use Greta's rage to to kind of, I guess, promote his own action, I just found really frustrating and distasteful. Yeah, it's very. It's it strikes me as very self interested. It's very much serving his legacy and his attempt to cast his prime ministership in a very different yeah. different light. I think so. And I think, you know, we've seen a, a number of leaders try and do that with, you know, meeting with Greta and, and kind of upping their climate credentials when we know on the ground, you know, they're not doing they're not doing enough. They're obviously not doing enough. And she, I think, and the movement more broadly has been really admirable in its absolute refusal to engage with that, to, in its kind of refusal to be co-opted. And what we're also seeing at the same time, I think, is a rising tide of new political leadership of younger political leadership that is bucking that trend as well that is refusing to compromise are you talking about alexandria ocasio-cortez always <laughs> look yeah aoc as she's known who is the young congress congresswoman from from new york 
um, she's certainly been instrumental in getting real action on climate change onto the political agenda in the US. Tell me more about what she's been doing. She has. She absolutely has. She's been really focused on climate change. And that's partly to her credit. It's also partly to the credit of a movement on the ground in the US, things like the Sunrise Movement, um, things like 350.org and the Divestment Movement, which have been trying to promote political candidates who will act on climate change. And because of that, we're now seeing, I think, quite a dramatic shift in US politics where we're actually talking about not only about climate action but about climate justice and tying that to economic justice through something called the Green New Deal. Okay, so yeah, I've heard about the Green New Deal. That's on that's on the agenda for democratic politics certainly. It's on the platform all candidates platforms for 2020. Yes, that's right. Yep. Okay, so I hear a lot about the Green New Deal. Can you tell me more about it? What's what's its inspiration? Yeah, well, I mean, part of what I love about the Green New Deal as a historian, and I'm sure you do too, is its direct evocation of, of American history. So it's, a, it's basically a shout out to the New Deal, the original New Deal of the 1930s, which happened under Franklin Roosevelt. And it's basically a response to the Great Depression. So it's an effort to claw the United States out of this catastrophic depression that it's experiencing through just injection of huge amounts of cash, like we're talking $50 billion in like 1930s currency, not, not current currency. And it's um, it's it's building things, there's enormous construction pro- programs, things like the Hoover Dam was built as part of the Green New Deal, uh, not the Green New Deal, the original New Deal program, it's not that green. Um, it's also things like social security, you know, creating welfare safety nets for people. So it's about economic justice and it's about rebuilding an economy in, in the face of absolute catastrophe. So what the Green New Deal is doing is evoking that history, but tying it as well to decisive and immediate action on climate change. So all of those New Deal actions, all of that, that kind of construction, that transport, that economic justice is also focused on environmental justice. Okay, so we're really looking at a huge public infrastructure program that will be of benefit to the environment. Yeah, exactly right. And to people as well. I think that's sort of that's the real key. It's partly it's focused on sustainable jobs, on people's livelihoods and people's well-being and clawing the United States out of the great financial crisis, the global financial crisis, which you know, it still has not been able to do nearly a decade later. Um, so I think that's really important to, to make that link between people and the environment, which is, again, a kind of dramatic change from even a couple of years ago, the fact that people are even talking in the US about that level of state intervention. That's really impressive. And it, without saying that it's definitely something that's going to get up because there is a big orange obstacle in the way, and that's the Trump presidency. <laughs> yeah. But I think it is really impressive because in Australia, it seems to me that we cannot... We don't, we don't talk in the language of a Green New Deal or a just transition. We're not able to communicate the need to save the environment and the need to mitigate the worst effects of climate change in a way that doesn't, see, doesn't have the appearance of threatening people's jobs. That's the whole problem of, I guess, of Queensland, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you're absolutely right. It's the failure to connect people and environment in in the way exactly as you say that the Green New Deal does that we we still understand environment environmental protection and economic progress as a binary as a kind of one one must suffer for the other to progress. 
we we just haven't been able to move beyond that debate. But I do I do think I mean I'm not sure about you, but I feel like the federal election was kind of a catalyst for a lot of people in in at least really coming to terms with that failure. That's that's definitely true. But at the moment we're still looking at the Adani mine in Queensland going ahead with the full support of the Queensland Labor government. What other options are there for people who are serious about making, I guess, an economic transition to to adjust to adapt to climate change or to arrest it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think there's been there's been a lot of talk about you know going outside the state. We've kind of we've we've raised this possibility at all, and for a lot of people, I think that has meant turning to business and and specifically turning to like tech billionaires. I think you've noticed that trend as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There seems to be this idea going around that capitalist innovation is going to basically is going to circumvent the climate crisis by bypassing the state entirely. And I think that you know there is there's probably some merit in that argument. For instance, we have the example of Mike Cannon Brooks, who is renowned as Australia's first. Um, born and bred tech billionaire. Um, he was instrumental in getting companies and, and the private sector to sign up to the climate strikes a couple of weeks ago. He has some really great ideas and he's investing in some really interesting projects around stopping climate, well, mitigating the worst effects of climate change. But at the same time, I just it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, this idea that capitalists and industry are going to save us. Like, it just, it strikes me as, anti-democratic. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not just anti-democratic, it's kind of terrifying, I think, because, you know, and in the US when I was there, which to be fair was kind of before the Green New Deal was being talked about, like people are literally saying, like really prominent climate campaigners are literally saying business is going to save us because of the state's failure to intervene. This is said in, in a positive way that, you know, these these business these tech billionaires with with great intentions are going to step in and kind of fill the gap but for me i agree completely it's totally anti-democratic because you know albeit with amazing good intentions these tech billionaires don't represent people they represent for the most part themselves or their shareholders depending on the, or what kind of company they run and and e- again even with good intentions you know they're interested in money they're yeah. not interested in economic justice yeah. yeah and I think that the real risk is that people will get left behind because this does dovetail with the with the, the coming challenge of automation and the jury's out about whether automation is going to mean the end the the end of good sustainable employment but Tech, you know, but these tech billionaires, finance capital, they don't have any interest in who gets left behind by their innovations. And what they're effectively going to do is leave the state to pick up the bill. Yeah, that is exactly right. And I think it's really important that that you mention that because the other thing that they do when it comes to the role of the state is present themselves as, as above it. So present themselves as kind of above or outside politics. Um but they absolutely are not <laughs> above or outside politics because, you know, as we've kind of hinted at, these tech billionaires are overwhelmingly men and they're overwhelmingly white. Yeah. So they've come with a very particular worldview, which is often extremely problematic. I think, yeah, I mean, Elon Musk. He's <laughs> a, a perfect example. He's a great example. And what you'll often hear from people like this is that they, they'll say that they are, they are neutral that yep. the algorithm is neutral, that their ideas are neutral. They are just good ideas. But ideas always come from people and they are always invested 
with their perspectives. And yeah, we are talking about the perspectives of people who are almost overwhelmed, well, are overwhelmingly white middle class men. Exactly. And the and the the kind of new world that they are envisioning and constructing with these kind of amazing inventions is designed to serve that exact demographic and everybody else just, I guess, has to kind of come along with it. Yeah, and sometimes without a choice. So there was this absolutely wild story that came out. It must have been a couple of months ago around the time that Jeffrey Epstein was in the news. Jeffrey Epstein is the very well-known financier who was arrested and charged with serious sex crimes and subsequently hanged himself hanged himself committed suicide in his cell um, or oh, gave birth or was he to murdered like... was he murdered by <laughs> am yeah. i indulging a conspiracy theory yeah, here yeah i think he did he gave birth to some of the wildest conspiracy theories you've, yeah. you've ever seen in american yeah. politics which was really saying something but um yeah i th- look i think i know where you're going with this so this is this about epstein and his um his philanthropy no, oh, not quite. It's okay. connected to his philanthropy. But there was this crazy story about how Jeffrey Epstein had enlisted the support of various tech startups and, te- and tech billionaires to, in this plan to basically harvest his sperm for the propagation of the human race. He was basically going to have a baby ranch. Gross. <laughs> it, it was disgusting, but it does... The reason I'm citing this is it ties really well into this idea of transhumanism that, you know, we have a few, we have a future that will be in crisis and we need to innovate our way out of it. But that's also a future that belongs to men, you know, to more yep. innocent men. So not necessarily Jeffrey Epstein's of the world, but people who are going to, and you know, for want of a better word, impregnate that future oh. with their ideas and their perspectives on the world. Okay. But it's not just that's not just transhumanism, is it? That's that's straying into eugenics. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Because he, I guess, his idea is that he is he is of superior genetic makeup, and by seeding the human race, he's kind of gradually improving it. But that's also the classic problem of you know, I guess, of white, very comfortable white men is that they see their positions, they see themselves as a stand-in for the whole human race. The other issue I have with some of the wild ideas that I've heard coming out, coming from tech billionaires. You know, we hear about things like shooting chemicals into the sky to create basically a layer, an additional layer between us and the sun so, yeah. to, so as to curtail global, curtail global warming. Um, we hear ideas about plugging humans into super communities. We hear ideas about plugging humans into supercomputers so that we can live online forever. <laughs> I'm really uncomfortable with those ideas because, you know, horror show that it is, I kind of like this world. And I just, I think that's a distraction from what we really should be doing, which is trying to save the earth that we've got. Exactly. And I think, you know, thinking about what that world looks like, you know, post, you know, even if we can limit global warming to two degrees, what partly what the new, the Green New Deal does is envision a, a different and a better world so it's not kind of falling into despair about to utter destruction it's thinking about how to kind of reconstruct a world that is economically and environmentally and racially just that's not just serving you know white tech billionaires it's serving everybody so how are we going to build that world yeah man i wish i knew the answer to that question (laughs) look i would say we've got options now which we didn't necessarily have even a few months ago yeah, I, look, I think that's probably true. You know, we started off talking about how, 
you know, in the last couple of weeks, you know, some of the biggest climate protests, environmental protests ever have occurred. We've had 7 million people striking across the world and that movement does seem to be building before our eyes. And and while Greta is, I, Greta Thunberg, I think is an amazing figurehead, especially again in that refusal to kind of play the role that she is expected to play to be the kind of provider of hope you know she is she is enraged like she represents the rage of a generation and and maybe that's kind of where that building of something new comes from yeah and of course not forgetting that there is that movement movement behind her and that does bring to mind what you know what you were saying earlier about how no matter how charismatic the figurehead or how instrumental they are they're for for a movement to succeed, there always have to be feet on the ground. There always have to be people doing the hard work behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've said, there are there are a lot of people. This is a and it's a hugely diverse movement as well. And I think a hugely accepting movement and and deliberately so. And that is really heartening because you know environmentalism in the past has been a tendency has had a tendency to be kind of very white and very middle class and i think you know we're still seeing that in some of the climate strikes but there is certainly a concerted effort to counter that and to make this inclusive and be about economic and racial justice as well as environmental justice yeah. you know that those those things are not separate issues they are deeply entwined yes your your environmentalism is not worth anything if it isn't inclusive exactly yeah and i think that's i mean that brings to mind something interesting that came up with uh, Extinction Rebellion, which is another another activist group that has popped up and they're doing a series of actions next week, um, basically worldwide. I think they're calling for seven days of climate yep. of climate action. Um, so Extinction Rebellion, one of one thing that they've become quite famous for is their tactic of mass arrest. So if you if you go onto Extinction an Extinction Rebellion um, site and you sign up to join the movement, get asked this question, are you willing to be arrested? Which was when I looked at that, it was I, I won't tell you what I said. Um, <laughs> Got to keep some things to myself, but that was it was kind of a existential moment for me. I was yep. like, "Am I willing to be arrested for something that is so important?" Yep. So that was one of the really striking things about Extinction Rebellion, but it also did provoke this criticism that I think they have responded to quite well, which was that being able to be arrested for your beliefs that is an enormous privilege, like. Yep. That's something for people like you and me, Emma. So, you know, for white, cisgendered, middle-class women who are going to be okay regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who, who don't really face consequences from having Andrew Bolt hit pieces written against them or for being for being arrested, you know, that we'll be okay because of exactly as you say, because of our position. And environmentalists have, have said that, or not just environmentalist activists of all stripes have said that, for a long time and have used mass arrests as a tactic, haven't they? Yeah. So, look, I'm going to have my total nerd moment and <laughs> just I'm, I'm putting it out there because no one else no one else cares about this. I care about this. But, um, no, so one of the other things that I really, I'm really impressed by as a historian with Extinction Rebellion is how they are really deliberately and consciously calling on the history of older mass movements. So, for instance, this tactic of mass arrest, that's something that they drew directly from the playbook of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the 1950s and the 1960s. So, and also this goes for Extinction Rebellion and also for the kids' climate strike, that they are very deliberately, very consciously nonviolent. So, and that's something that we know, well, I mean, I always hesitate to take strong lessons from history, but 
the historical record does show that the only successful mass movements have been those that have actually at some point adopted non-violence. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say those movements are not subject to violence or don't experience violence because often they do. Of course, if we think of something like the civil rights movement in the United States, which is a, ostensibly a non-violent movement but is inflicted with an enormous amount of violence or I guess um, even you know anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, Nelson Mandela is held up as a kind of hero of non-violence but but also of course that resistance at some times has to be violent. Yes, and and Nelson Mandela did go on a journey from being part of, you know, part of violent action yeah, against exactly. the apartheid state to being a, a Yeah, and I've been I've been thinking about this a bit lately that um, as much as the as the climate movement is kind of tapping into that history of non-violence and and building on it and being really conscious of it, it also has this I guess interesting strain, which is probably also quite um, white and middle class, where it's it's straying into survivalism as well. Oh, I've gone full survivalist. <laughs> you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so after the federal election, I did kind of I cracked it. I did. I may have been drunk, but I I like I woke up the next morning and I had in my search history all these like rope tying courses and <laughs> survival courses with these like big yeah. ex-military guys who like take you out into the bush and set you free and I don't know you have to find your way back to base yep, camp or something yeah I started looking at you know properties in like places like central yep. Gippsland where there'll still be rain in 50 years yep. time um yeah it was a bit it was a bit weird but it, it well, one, I'm not, I'm not going survivalist. Like, I'm not yet. Anyway, not yet. Not at this point. I'm still, yep. you know, I'm, I'm committing to the movement. I'm going to, I'm going to strike. I'm going to strikes. I'm, yeah, yeah, taking action. But it was, it just, it was such a weird moment for me because I never thought that I would be in my early thirties and I would be like sending messages to my friends saying, "What do I do about my glasses prescription?" when the end times come? Like, am I just going to start stocking up on contact lenses now? Am I going to have the same pair of glasses for the next 50 years? Like, this it, this is not where I thought my world, my life was going to end up. No, I don't think any of us thought that. And as much as it's, like, fun, fun to joke about, it is, you know, I think it's it's legitimate to be afraid. And that's why we're seeing, you know, lots of articles about people writing about exactly what you're talking about and, and how they feel. And I think, you know our generation again and younger generation, you know, like often the children's climate strikers are talking about how they don't want to have children because they can't guarantee them a safe world to live in. And like, I I mean, I feel that I think quite personally and at the moment, like fairly physically because I'm quite pregnant. Yeah, I can, yeah, I'm looking at you across the studio and you, you're looking very pregnant yeah. these days. Yeah, exactly. But it is, you know, it's something that you think about and like, I mean, maybe it's just my my own, there mu- I must have hope somewhere because, I'm, you know, I'm having kids, I'm assuming the world will continue. But it is, I think I'm often struck by a kind of debilitating anxiety about what do we do? You know, where where are we going to go, and where are, what are we going to do? And that that is so often dismissed. You know, our own prime minister has dismissed this as needless anxiety, and it's not needless. But I think it's also really important to emphasise that, as much as you know that kind of survivalism, of course, it has you know middle class overtones. And you read articles in the Guardian about like rich people selling their house in Sydney so they can go and live off grid and and things like that. But it is legitimate to be afraid. But that also doesn't mean that you're you're giving up. You can both be afraid and be planning for an apocalyptic future and still believe that change is possible. Yes. So you can yeah, you can hold all those things in your heart at once, hope and fear and anger and 
look, I think, and I think you're right when you say you must have hope. Look, I have hope, you know, as your, as your children's, um, your child and your future child's favourite spinster aunt, I held great hope for their future. And that's, and that's a choice that I've made. I think yep. in this context, we can choose to be defeated or we can choose hope despite everything that's stacked against us. So to bring it back full circle, I think it's worth us thinking about Bob Hawke again and what he would have thought of today and the, cl- the climate strikes, the actions that people are taking. What would he have made of Greta Thunberg and young people acting for climate? Yeah, look, I like to think that he would have been really supportive of, of that movement. Hawke was known, I think, for governing with an eye to future generations, as we've, as we've kind of discussed. But I think my when I look back at, at Hawke's role and, and Hawke's leadership, the hope that I draw from it is that political leadership and courage in political leadership that we've kind of talked we've talked I guess we've talked about the lack of and that's not I mean it's through Hawkey's environmentalism his particular brand of environmentalism where he was politically brave but it's also again to connect those issues to say environmentalism is not separate from other issues it's things like Hawkey's uncompromising stand against racism so he Hawkey in the 80s and even before when he was in the trade trade union movement was staunchly anti-apartheid to his political detriment you know he didn't he didn't gain anything politically out of being anti-racist when a lot of his peers were you know not necessarily opposed to apartheid in south africa to racial seg- segregation and horrendous racial violence he stood up to people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan who kind of refused to do anything substantive about apartheid and he maintained that stance all the way through his political career and his personal life and i think that's that's the kind of, I guess, lesson, you know, as much as we don't want lessons from history, for me, that's where the hope lies. Yeah. So and I, I guess the hope lies with courage and that's whether you're Bob Hawke and you're, you know, a senior statesman or you're a climate striking teen or you're, you know, two white ladies doing a podcast. I guess, yeah, courage is the point. Absolutely. On that kind of cheerful note, I guess that was a little bit more cheerful than than we're used to. <laughs> we'll wrap it up and say thank you so much for listening to the Barely Getting By podcast. Um, we'll put lots of articles and, and links and things to, to things we've talked about in the show notes. You can follow us both on Twitter. I'm at Emma Shortis. And I'm at Dr. Claude. Again, steadily up here, upping the follower count. Um, and thanks to Andrew Bolt, I have a few more followers today than I did <laughs> a few days ago. Um, in the next episode of Barely Getting By, we'll be talking about something equally cheerful. Isn't that right, Chloe? Yes, we're going to be talking about one of my favourite subjects, fascism. We hope you've tuned in. <laughs>